0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello. Welcome to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my blessing to be in dialogue with Maxime Schreier. We will be discussing his book, I Saw It, Ilya Selvinsky and the Legacy of Bearing Witness to the Shoah, published in Boston by Academic Studies Press 2013. Dr. Schreier is professor of Russian, English, and Jewish studies at Boston College, where he is also the the acting chair of the Department of Eastern Slavic and German Studies. Maxime, I'm honored to be in dialogue with you today. Thank you wholeheartedly.
2: Thank you so much, Ari, for having me on the program. I really appreciate it. And even though the book came out almost a decade ago, I think in a sense it's become even more relevant to today
1: thank you in in this capacity um can you before we get into some of the more content oriented questions in what ways do you feel that your book is more relevant today in 2023 than it was in 2013 when it came out do you mind sharing if if you feel comfortable any ways that your thinking has evolved over the past 10 years regarding it's this subject so much, after completely? Absolutely.
2: It. It's not so much the thinking about the subject, although I have uh, accumulated... Uh, an additional body of evidence, which I hope to incorporate in a revised edition one day. This book just came out in Hebrew translation with Yad Vashem publications, and so that edition incorporates a few more new things. But um, it's less the argument Mm -hmm. than two principal things. So this is a book about uh, the Shoah by bullet in the occupied Soviet territories about the way it was originally witnessed and documented and understood, and about the destiny of one principal poetic witness, the protagonist of my book. But since I wrote the book, two things changed in major geopolitical ways. One, Crimea, the Crimean Peninsula, where much of the book is set, where I researched the mass atrocities, uh, uh, mass executions of Jews in 1942-43 has since been annexed by Russia. When I was doing the research, it was Ukraine. I visited there. I worked with local uh, sites, with local archives. So when Russia annexed Crimea on principled Moral grounds, an army to inflate those, but I stopped going because I do not accept the annexation. Uh, But more importantly, speaking about it with you today, so this is November 10th, 2023. We are about a month since the October 7th attack by Hamas on Israel. Of course, speaking about it today, I think uh, adds a whole tier of uh, relevance uh, because uh, what the Hamas troops or the Hamas mobile squads were doing in southern Israel is very much like what the Nazi mobile squads and their local accomplices were doing in the occupied territories, murdering Jewish civilians uh, by bullet, and also When you think of how this was originally documented, and I'll get into this, the eyewitnesses who first saw it in Crimea, for instance, in early January 1942, saw an open-air morgue. This is very much what the eyewitnesses who saw the immediate aftermath of the Hamas atrocities in southern Israel also referred to open-air morgues communities, uh, grounds covered with bodies, uh, massacred bodies. So, of course, the recent genocide against Jews makes us reflect on the earlier genocides and how those were witnessed and understood.
1: Thank you for sharing. Can you kindly tell us a bit about yourself? Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired the scholar that you are today?
2: Thank you so much. I appreciate the question. So um, I was born in Moscow when it was still the Soviet Union in 1967. Um, I am one-fourth Litvak and three-fourth Ukrainian Jewish. Uh, And uh, my mother was already born in Moscow, my father in Leningrad, but there... Parents, My grandparents were all Jews who grew up in the pale and who uh, left the pale as young people to receive an education in Soviet universities in the 1920s and to join the new Soviet intelligentsia. Um, growing up, uh, I had a strong sense of Jewishness. My father is a writer and a doctor and a Jewish writer, and uh, he instilled in me a strong sense of Jewish pride. I never had a formal Jewish education but i had a strong jewish spiritual upbringing and then the probably the most formative uh, um, period for this book is the period when we became refuseniks we were refuseniks for nine years uh, and were not allowed to emigrate until 1987 so i came of age during that time those were the years when i really witnessed and participated already in the Jewish uh, Refusenik movement, which was a movement of Jewish national liberation. And so I came here at the age of 20 uh, and uh, that kind of uh, heritage and that kind of baggage never really leaves you. What inspired you to write
1: this book? What message or messages do you hope to convey to readers in this volume?
2: Yes, thank you uh, again for this uh, very important question. What inspired me were a combination of, uh, I suppose, destiny, intellectual and academic interests, and some choices I've made in my career. So um, I trained as a literary scholar, but uh, soon after leaving graduate school, I began to shift in the direction of Jewish studies, and my interest became Jewish writers in diaspora, particularly from the former Russian Empire, Soviet Union, Eastern Europe, and I gradually began to shift also into Holocaust studies. Uh, Two, um, I have always been interested in Soviet Jewish writers of uh, the earliest Soviet period, the 1920s, when the expressions of Jewish identity was still relatively unhindered by the regime, by censorship, and by their careers. So, a number of works that I have produced, uh, including earlier books, dealt with questions of uh, Jewish identity and creativity in the Soviet Union. That brought me to the career of Ilya Silvinsky, who is the protagonist of my book, who is a major early Soviet modernist, and who managed to weather the storms of Stalinism, and who during the war became a major Holocaust witness. Simultaneously, I became particularly interested in how the Shoah was witnessed originally in its immediate aftermath, both the Shah by bullet and uh, uh, the industrialized murder of Jews in the death camps, and that in turn kind of resulted in a conflation of interest in Jewish writers, uh, particularly of the Soviet period, in the. Um, problematics of the Shoah in the occupied territories, something the West until about 25, 30 years ago had been relatively oblivious to, thinking that the Holocaust mainly happened in the death camps. Uh, Of course, that's uh, uh, not the case. And so eventually all of these vectors brought me to the research which became this book, which is about three things. How the Shoah occurred in the occupied Soviet territories? That's largely a historical question. Two, how was it witnessed and depicted, which is a question for both uh, literary studies, studies of mass communication, and of course, studies of uh, politics, censorship, because the Soviet Union increasingly resisted the presentation of the Holocaust in the Soviet territories as the murder of Jews, uh, obscuring the genocidal nature of what the Nazis were carrying out. So that's two. And three, of course, it is something of a biography of one major Jewish writer who heard the call and who, in the early days of the Nazi invasion, volunteered, and who became one of the principal national witnesses of the murder of Jews in the Soviet-occupied territories. So all of this came together around 2010, when I decided that to write a book like that based on published sources would be uh, really a very limited glance. And so I traveled to crimea several times and then also to archives in moscow and collected evidence uh, which all resulted in this book which i'm happy to discuss
1: what are the primary themes in your book what story does your book tell
2: well it tells i kind of just wove those three things together it tells three principal stories one is how the Nazis murdered Jews in the occupied Soviet territories. How did they do it? Who were the killers? How was the murder carried out? What was uh, the role of the local communities? How it differed depending on the location? What was the role of the local collaborators? That's one big story. The other big story is how the specificity of Jewish martyrdom, of Jewish death, was uh, partially allowed and then increasingly obscured and silenced in the Soviet Union? Essentially, how did the people understand that uh, these texts are about the murder of Jews uh, if sometimes the Jewishness is obscured, uh, uh, deleted, uh, blotted out? And three, what was the price that the Soviet witnesses to the Shoah, who wrote about it, paid for bearing witness to the Shoah. And so that is a story that I find particularly fascinating, that some of the Jewish writers were at the peak of their creativity and openness during the Shoah, and they paid a price for that.
1: Who is Ilya Silvinsky? What can you tell us about his upbringing and his family? when and where did he live
2: so Ilya Silvinsky was born in 90 in uh 1899 uh in crimea in the um capital of crimea simferopol his house still stands there it's now the Ilya Silvinsky museum he was born to a jewish uh middle class family his father was a furrier um and then Mm, he uh, spent his youth in another Crimean uh, town called Yevpatoria, which is an older Greek colony. Some places in Crimea, of course, were had been Greek colonies, and they bear that in some of their names. Uh, like, for instance, Kerch used to be Panticopyum, and uh, Yevpatoria is Yevpatoria. Um, as a young man... He had his share of adventures, but generally was a revolutionary partisan, and uh, in the early 1920s, he becomes a major figure on the early Soviet literary scene. He is the leader of the Soviet literary constructivism, which is a major branch of early Soviet modernism. He's a poet and playwright. He later became a memoirist, novelist, but his main work is in shorter and longer poems poetry, and in drama. And uh, also, even before the war, he had his share of uh, difficulties, uh, including two party resolutions that targeted him directly. He survives. Uh, He still has a great deal of fame and acclaim, but he is walking on razor's blade. Uh, He volunteers after the Nazi invasion, becomes a front uh, frontline journalist and uh, a political officer. He is at the war front from, 19, from the summer of 1941 until uh, the late fall of 1943. Then uh, comes the most difficult time of his career, and he is eventually allowed to return in, during the victorious spring of 1945. Um, uh, a lot of trouble during late Stalinism, where he particularly pays the price of his uh, Jewish for his Jewishness, for his Jewish pride, and his having written quite openly about the genocide of Jews. But the particularly remarkable thing is that he lives until 1968, so he lives through the thaw through de Stalinization and to the younger generations of writers in the Soviet Union, he is an amazing example of artistic endurance. My father, the writer David Shirel Petrov, as a young poet met Silvinsky and admired him very much because he was one of the few people who had survived and was still bearing the torch of the great Soviet avant-garde culture.
1: Why is Ilya Selvinsky not a household name for many Jewish readers and for many it's English largely... language readers? What explains this?
2: Yeah, I think it's largely because not a lot of his work is available in translation or is presently in print. His work was always available in anthologies uh, of uh, Soviet writing, and he had something of a following in in translation during the 30s, 40s, but um, certainly his name and reputation in the 1950s and 60s were obscured in the West by writers like Boris Pasternak or Osip Mandelstam or later Vasily Grossman, who became major household names in translation who were jewish russian writers and uh, also i suspect the fact that silvinsky was and remained uh, a marxist or at least called himself a marxist and never openly openly um uh, challenged the regime on its principal ideological grounds, uh, um, sort of resulted perhaps in a perception that he was a Soviet partisan at a time when those kinds of Soviet partisans were regarded with skepticism. He was not a dissident. I personally think his contribution is particularly great because he managed to get into print through the word Soviet times, particularly the years of Stalinism, the truth about Jewish suffering and death during the Holocaust. But this was largely unknown or uh, outside the circles of uh, students of uh, Soviet writing or Holocaust historians. So what I tried to do in the book is uh, reintroduce him by telling this story, but also including translations of two of his exemplary wartime poems. Uh, I think he has become more of a household name in English over the past decade. I hope he has.
1: What transpired in and around Kirch during 1941 to 1944? What atrocities and massacres were perpetrated there?
2: So, Kirch is uh, located on the easternmost side of the Crimean Peninsula. So if you look at the map of the Black Sea, Essentially, Turkey, the Anatolian coast is below, and the Crimean Peninsula is stark in the middle. It's a large peninsula which until the 18th century was not part of the Russian Empire. It was neither Russian nor Ukrainian. It belonged to the Crimean Henate, kind of on an orbit of Ottoman Turkey. It was colonized during Catherine the Great, the rule of Catherine the Great. Um, of course, Crimea is strategically very important. If you remember, for instance, the Crimean War, already then the big game involved uh, not just the Russian Empire, but Ottoman Turkey, the United Kingdom. Why? Because if you control Crimea, you control the Black Sea to a large degree. The seat of the Russian Black Sea Navy is Sebastopol on the southern coast of Crimea. So there is a lot of at stake. So when Nazis invade the Soviet Union and uh, in the first disastrous months of the Nazi advance, they very quickly advance uh, all along the border, moving northward, centerward, and southward, and they begin to occupy Crimea. The initial Soviet propaganda is presenting Crimea as a kind of uh, fortress that would never surrender a Fortress Peninsula and also which is particularly tragic refugees flock to Crimea from the areas where Nazis are already carrying out the annihilation of Jews there are even Polish Jews in Crimea who are refugees and so basically um Crimea is being defended ferociously but uh by the um by November of 1915, Forty-one. The Nazis occupy all of the Crimean Peninsula, and uh, our story now focuses on its eastern tip, the Kerch Peninsula. Um, what happens there is uh, really remarkable for Holocaust history. So, when the Nazis go through Crimea, they follow more or less the same pattern of Jewish annihilation. In small rural communities, there are, for instance, Jewish collective farms in Crimea, all Yiddish uh, speaking and all. They basically kill all Jews in small communities right where they are living. In larger towns and cities, they first temporarily ghettoize them. They're not really ghettos per se, but for instance, in the city of Kerch, they hold thousands of Jews in the old city jail. Uh, and then they truck them or walk them primarily to the so-called anti-tank ditches. Basically, in the Soviet defense doctrine, there was this idea that large anti-tank ditches would deter the advance of the panzers and it was partially successful but partially unsuccessful because the tank the nazi tank troops figured out how to circumvent them or to cross them so basically in the case of kerch uh in late november uh in december of 1941 the entire jewish community uh local jews as well as jewish refugees from other parts of the soviet union are first ordered to appear in the main city square, Haymarket Square. Then they are taken to the city jail. Women and young girls are raped en masse and tortured. This is some of the most horrendous uh, evidence, which I hesitate even to write about. And then um, in several days, they are trucked to the outskirts, the western outskirts of the city of Kerch to an area called Bagirova, where there is a major anti-tank ditch, which is about... Uh, less than one mile long, and uh, they're brought there and uh, shot by bullet, by um, local Wehrmacht troops, by local accomplices and uh, members of Nazi killing squads, and so basically the story would have been horrendous but complete had it not been for something that happens in the last days of December, which is the Soviet command undertakes a daring but very ill-conceived operation whereby a landing, uh, uh, basically, troops are descended into eastern Crimea, and they are able to push the Nazis from eastern Crimea, and eastern Crimea is taken over and is in Soviet hands until May of 1942. As a result, in the early days of January, the avant-garde of Soviet troops, as well as photojournalists, uh, documentary uh, filmmakers and uh, regular journalists basically uh, are able to document what they see in the most immediate aftermath. And so what Sylvinsky sees, who is there in the early days of January as a military journalist is basically a anti-tank ditch. And I have photographs of that in the book, which is filled to the brim with bodies And also bodies strewn all around. There's a little bit of snow. The temperature is about 32 Fahrenheit. So it is like an open-air morgue. And what the earliest witnesses see had never been seen before. This is our earliest documented Holocaust evidence. They don't see skulls and bones. They don't see pulverized bones. They see real people enclosed with identities, with faces. Some of them had been just killed a few days before. And so the site is absolutely atrocious and devastating. Even the most seasoned reporters are at a loss as to how to describe this. And Silvinsky becomes one of the first to describe it. So that's in brief what happens, uh, which would bring us to what happens next and how it was described. I just want to mention one other thing. Why had the earliest witnesses been so unprepared. Of course, they knew something about what the Nazis were doing to Jews in the occupied territories, and yet this was uh, a scene which was ample, undeniable evidence. What it brought to mind to people who knew about genocides was the genocide of Armenians in Ottoman Turkey in 1915, 1916, and the photographs that also look like open-air morgues.
1: What is Selvinsky's, What is Selvinsky's contribution to the literature of the Holocaust?
2: Well, so his primary contribution are uh, the poems he writes in... Um, the starting with January 1941. So after he spends time at this ditch, examining the scene I just described, he goes home. The first, home, not home. I apologize. He goes back to his uh, division and to his uh, military newspaper, where he's a senior reporter. He's already a lieutenant colonel in the Soviet troops, which is a fairly high uh, rank for a field officer for nineteen, uh, early 1942. His diary, which I have uh, read many times uh, uh, for 1942, starts with an entry where he basically says, uh, in paraphrase, uh, what happened? In Kerch, I will describe later. For now, this overwhelming sight of the anti tank ditch filled to the brim with bodies. He says, The nerves no longer react. I cannot write journalism about it. What I could, I have described in poetry. See my poem, I saw it. So the paradox really begins here. He fails as a military journalist, his job is to write a journalistic report. But instead, he writes a long poem in which he describes what he saw and also offers reflections on what to do and how to avenge the Nazi crimes. He writes it, and here comes the most surprising thing. It is already published in February 1942 in Central Soviet Press, is disseminated widely and read by millions. So this becomes probably the first literary text about the Holocaust published and widely read. It's a text where the word Jew appears. There is a detailed description of a Jewish mother who lies there holding a small child. They were both murdered. And at the end of the poem, the word Jew appears again. So the poem, unambiguously speaks about the murder of Jews by Nazis and their accomplices. Um, And then he goes on uh, to write uh, several other poems which speak about the Shoah, about Nazi crimes, about a trial of Nazi collaborators, and in all of them, Jewish death and Jewish martyrdom form a central theme. But that's, in brief, his contribution, and it's quite peerless for that.
0: I don't know about you, but I'm very busy, and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including calorie-smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Can you tell us about
1: Selvinsky's daughter, Tatiana? What is unique about her? What were her personality traits? What was his relationship like with her? Can you describe her biography?
2: I had the great privilege and the great pleasure of knowing her. She was already... uh, uh, you know, uh, in her 80s. Zelinsky uh, had two daughters. Uh, he adopted and raised his wife's daughter by first marriage, and then he had uh, his second daughter, Tatiana, the one I met. She was an artist and a very, very famous stage designer. Uh, she also wrote some poetry. Zelinsky um, did not want her. To become a poet, I interviewed her for the book. I've spent a lot of time with her. Even actually, interestingly enough, my younger daughter Tatiana, who is now sixteen, met her in Moscow and remembers her fondly. Um, this was when I was still able to travel to the Soviet, to Russia. I don't travel to Russia since the invasion of Crimea. She was uh, a remarkable person, but the one thing that uh, is uh, interesting is Zelensky specifically told her that he didn't want her to follow in his footsteps and he steered her in the direction of the visual arts and so when he is returned to Moscow in the late fall of 1943 when he is uh, uh, forced to be uh, uh, discharged from the military when he's blacklisted uh, and when when he awaits arrest he uh decides to do one thing. He decides to uh, push her, door, his daughter in the direction of studying with the great Jewish-Russian artist Robert Falk, who was living in Moscow, and she takes lessons with him and becomes his disciple, and uh, has a very productive career as an artist, but also what was particularly special, she opened some of her father's personal artifacts to me. She gave me a trove of Photographs and also uh, approved of uh, this project. Access to archives and really was instrumental in uh, my being able to tell this story. She only passed a few years ago. I was, I'm still in touch with the family in Moscow.
1: How did you locate your sources? What difficulties did you encounter? How did you overcome them?
2: Yeah, so. There were published sources which simply required a lot of persistency because some of Sylvinsky's wartime poems were only published once reprinted once in the 1940s and never published again so you had to really know the uh history of their publication to understand for instance his very important poem a trial in krasnodar which describes the first ever trial of nazis and nazi accomplices which takes place in july uh, um, 1943 in uh the uh city of krasnodar on the black sea coast of russia the Nazis were tried in absentia, but 11 collaborators were tried and most of them were publicly executed. Silvinsky writes a poetic report about it. And uh, it's only published in a magazine in 1945, once reprinted, and then it disappears. Literally no collection of his work. And he had many, including academic editions, reprints. So part of it was really a hunt for sources. The other part was the research I conducted on site in Crimea, because I really felt that to write a book about this without going there, without seeing the sites, was a very limited perspective. And still today, Crimea is, I, ha- I hate to say one of the best places, but if one wanted to see the what remains of the up by Bullet, in Crimea, you can still see the ditches You can still see the buildings where Jews were held, which have remained virtually unchanged. And that experience was remarkable. I stood where Silvinsky stood, more or less exactly, and looked at the uh, ditch, which is now covered with a thin layer of grass But beneath that thin layer of grass lie Jewish bodies, Jewish bones and skulls. When he was there, they were basically like bodies in a morgue. And lastly, I did some research in local uh, Crimean archives, uh, uh, which when I went there, were no longer Soviet KGB archives, but were kind of the local Ukrainian archives. And the access was uh, not so hard to gain. And th- those were really uh, important uh, sources to consult. And lastly, I spent a lot of time with Silvinsky's personal papers, which I kept mainly in the archive the Central archives of russian uh literature uh, the russian state archive of literature and the arts in moscow and a little bit in his family in his old apartment in moscow so that's kind of the principal sources but there are always orbits and orbits of sources in such work
1: can you elaborate on selvinsky's piece a trial in krasnodar which you just alluded to yeah interpret it's... it and contextualize it for us
2: I'm happy to. Basically, uh, what starts happening is, in early 1942, Shudvinsky becomes probably the earliest national poetic witness to the Nazi atrocities uh, uh, and uh, the Nazi annihilation of Jews by bullet. It was mainly by bullet, although toward 1942-43 the Nazis began to use gas vans in certain places, including in the coast of the Black Sea and North Cox. Um, He also begins to run into difficulties with Stalin's uh, leadership. Why? because as the tide of the war changes following the Battle uh, of Stalingrad, the Soviet victory, and then toward the Battle of Kursk, so you're talking about late 42, early 43, and then summer of 1943, the Soviet doctrine evolves and becomes the doctrine that we now call the doctrine of uh, uh, obscuring, obfuscating the Jewishness of uh, the Nazi genocide. So in other words, it was becoming harder and harder to speak of Nazis, uh atrocities against Jews in the occupied territories. The regime increasingly presents them as the Nazi atrocities against Soviet civilians. When it comes to the death camps, for instance, in Eastern Poland, the Soviet Union reports them as Jewish death, but those are not our jews as it were but their jews but when it comes to soviet jews they're not jews all of a sudden they're soviet civilians and so for Sidvinsky, who writes with such openness it's increasingly becoming difficult so he's beginning to run into problems yet in the summer of 1943 he's still a military journalist he's a lieutenant colonel and he goes to the southern Russian city of Krasnodar, which is not far from Sochi on the Black Sea coast, to report on the first ever trial, uh, as I mentioned, uh, of 11 Nazi collaborators, which were who were Russian uh, Ukrainian nationals, one Adiga national, a local North Caucasus nationality. Basically, they are tried by a Soviet military tribunal, but uh, under Soviet criminal Uh, code, and uh, it's uh, a mass trial. The Soviet leadership takes a great interest in it. Stalin himself uh, and his henchmen orchestrate the proceedings, uh, and uh, Silvinsky, and trouble is already brewing over his head, he writes a long report in verse called A Trial in Krasnodar, Suit in Krasnodar, where basically he describes the proceedings, the interrogations of one of the accused, as they are called, a collaborator, and then graphically describes the execution. The executions take place outside at a large square in front of a crowd of about thirty thousand people, and all the uh, sentenced uh, collaborators are uh, sentenced to a public hanging, which is done in a very synchronous way it's filmed basically they stand on trucks the trucks tear off uh at the same time all the 10 are uh, hanging and basically the crowd applauds. it's this kind of barbaric scene of uh national uh of national revenge and Sylvinsky describes it in such a way that um when you read the original not the published version but the original you almost wonder if his point was to say that uh, this public medieval ritual is there to distract the population from what actually happened. Because if you read the proceedings of the trial, the word Jew barely appears, even though all of these people, wore. Participants or accomplices, auxiliaries in the murder of Jews. So basically he writes his poem and then he's summoned to Moscow in uh, November 1943 and uh, three party resolutions target him. He is basically blacklisted and he is essentially under a, a house arrest of sorts until the spring of 1945 uh, when he's returned back to the military, he's allowed to publish, and he manages to publish a edited and censored version of this poem about the trial, in which the trial is described, but the public hanging is not. And he fights tooth and nail to keep it. Uh, However, what he does manage to do is he does manage to put uh, a reference to the nazi atrocities in crimea in 1941 which he had earlier described so in other words there is a trajectory that connects his earlier holocaust work to this poem uh and one other thing you asked what's the significance of the trial so this is the first ever trial of nazi criminals or atrocities and uh, That trial makes such an impact on the allies that they begin to think that the Soviets are going to start trying Nazis without the allies. And so what comes directly out of the Krasnodar trial is the so-called Moscow Declaration, in which the allies basically put out this memorandum where they say, after the war, there will be international tribunals of justice. So this begins to create the legal framework for the Nuremberg Trial.
1: What happened to Selvinsky personally during World War II and during the Holocaust?
2: Can well, you so he, he's at the war fronts from the summer of 1941 until late November of 1943. Um, and he is publishing. He is a frontline journalist uh, and a political officer. Now, when the troubles begin uh, to brew over his head, uh, um. He senses that something is going on. There is an article in a central newspaper in the summer of 43, which targets his work and is unsigned. Some speculate that Stalin himself wrote it. I don't think Stalin wrote it, but I think he certainly, uh, you know, uh, had something to do with it. Like I said, this is the problem with the Holocaust witnesses who refuse to obfuscate Jewish death and suffering. So he's targeted directly and blacklisted. He's spared, but he himself felt that the sophistication of the punishment, so he's brought to appear at a meeting of the Org Bureau of the Communist Party. This is this, uh, it was later called Bureau, but it's the central governing body of the Communist Party. Uh, Stalin himself makes an appearance, uh, his leading henchmen are there, so he's mocked, he's insulted, he's interrogated. He said that he came there as a young man and he left uh, feeling like uh, an uh, an ancient person. And uh, then he's unable to publish. But what he felt was the sophisticatedness of the punishment is that he was prevented from being at the war fronts. So he never got, for instance, to write as did other major Holocaust witnesses about the deliberation of the camps. When the Soviet armies begin to liberate the camps in Eastern Poland in 1944, then of course, uh, Auschwitz, uh, uh, January 1945, he is still blacklisted and in Moscow. Um, And one other thing, his troubles continue uh, and reach the next crescendo in 1946, during a period of retrenchment and uh, a new post-war attack on the intelligentsia, the period known as uh, when basically a chilling message is sent by the party across uh, the country, particularly to the writers, to the artistic intelligentsia. In the minutes that survive, several times, Stalin himself makes remarks about Selvinsky, that are threatening and disparaging. Uh, He's not openly targeted, but he expects arrest. Uh, Thank God he survives. And uh, he continues being active, uh, like I said, into the late 60s.
1: What is depicted in Selvinsky's piece, I saw it? Can you paraphrase it for us? Can you explain it for us?
2: Well, um I saw it as the poem that uh, I touched on when we were speaking about what happened in Crimea and in Kerch in 1941, 42. So this is the poem that Silvinsky writes on the basis of having witnessed the immediate aftermath of the murder of thousands of Jews, primarily women, children, and the elderly, uh, uh, in front of an anti-tank ditch on the western outskirts of the city of Kirch. He writes a long poem about it. It's published in February 1942 and reprinted a number of times and becomes a nationally known text. And why I say nationally known, not only because it's published in the central press, but also, for instance, there is evidence that people copy it. They distribute it. And even versus there's really interesting evidence that people not knowing what it refers to think that it refers to Bobby Yar, which is the biggest single uh, execution, murder of Jews. Uh, Over 30,000 Jews killed in several days in the fall of 1941 outside of Kiev. So basically he has national fame and acclaim as a writer about this topic. Uh, I saw it remains in print, throughout the Soviet decades and continues to be read by millions. It is never suppressed, which is really a miracle.
1: What is unique about Selvinsky's work vis-a-vis other pieces of Holocaust literature and other poets, authors, and literatures who composed work during the Holocaust?
2: I think several things are unique. One of them is that he is a frontline officer. To give you an example, Some of the best Soviet poets of his generation were evacuated and spent the war in the safety of uh, living in the hinterlands of Russia, in the Ural Mountains, in uh, Central Asia. For instance, there's a famous picture, which I reproduce in the book, where Silvinsky, who is on furlough, he's already a lieutenant colonel, he's decorated, and he's sitting in the company of two very famous uh, Soviet poets, Boris Pasternak, who is Jewish, and Nikolai Oseyev, who is not. And they both have this look on their faces like he comes from a different era. It's because he has tasted of battle. Uh, He saw it with his own eyes. So it's the eyewitnessing perspective, the perspective of a frontline officer to how early in the history of the war and the Holocaust he was able to steer these texts into print Three, that he remains insistent upon writing to the fullest extent it was possible about Jewish suffering. He writes about the suffering of all civilians, but the Jewish perspective remains throughout his career. And I think uh, four, probably because uh, some of his works remain in print continue to be in print. Uh, This is not to say that uh, there aren't other important early Shoah witnesses. I'll name several who every person interested in this subject should know. Of course, Vasily Grossman, the great uh, writer and military journalist uh, who writes the first uh, long nonfiction report about Treblinka, the hell of Treblinka. Of course, Ilya Ehrenburg, novelist, journalist, anti-Nazi polemicist and poet who presides over the Black Book project initially. Also a poet, Jewish poet uh, called Pavel Antakulski who writes an absolutely peerless poem about an old Jewish-Polish woman looking for her two children murdered at a death camp in Poland. And lastly, a younger poet by the name of Lev Ozerov, who is originally from Kiev, who in 1945 writes and soon thereafter publishes a long account in verse of the Bobby Yar uh, massacre. Silvinsky's story to me is particularly unique because of his circumstances, uh, because of the, the fact that he was a frontline officer, but also because he remains an experimental poet and a modernist. So the texture of his verse is particularly, is particularly unique here.
1: Can you tell us about the literary magazine Banner? What were mm. its origins? Who else contributed? What does it teach us about journalism and literature in the Soviet Union?
2: That's a great question. And actually something I have been researching, uh, I think published a couple of things about it. So Banner is a Soviet monthly. It's part of the tradition that is uh, particularly Russian and un-American, these uh, so-called thick Thick literary magazines. Uh, They are not quarterlies. They're usually monthlies. Uh, There were several such major ones in Moscow and a couple in Leningrad and also others in central Soviet cities. Uh, Banner is, uh, by the way, which still uh, comes out in Moscow, is one of uh, probably the top four. It is not a military magazine. It's a literary magazine, but it has... Kind of a loose military affiliation um in late 1943 there is a shake-up of uh so the leadership of the soviet literary magazines and uh, some of the editors are changed and basically stalin appoints as the new editor-in-chief of banner and in russian banner is called Znamya, a famous soviet playwright by the name of Siewelot Wisniewski, who is of Polish noble descent, who is an Orthodox communist, who participated in the events of the Russian Civil War, and who is probably the only official Soviet writer who writes a Soviet tragedy, because how can you have a tragedy in official Soviet theater, right? Uh, Because (laughs) life is supposed to be so wonderful and not tragic. His play, "No, The Optimistic Tragedy, is... uh, Uh, solidly a part of the Soviet repertoire. So basically, in the early days of the war, Vishnevsky heads the writers group attached to the Baltic uh, uh, Navy uh, during the besieged Leningrad. He then um, is uh, brought back to Moscow and he's appointed as head of this magazine with the expectation that he would be very orthodox uh, as a communist. Something remarkable happens. Uh, he, An orthodox communist and a Stalinist he is, but for some reason, he feels an imperative to open the pages of his magazine to holocaust literature and it's in znamya in banner in the spring of 1944 throughout 44 and uh into uh the fall of 1945 uh it's in znamya where the principal soviet texts about the holocaust appear including Including Vasily Grossman's The Hell of Treblinka, including some work by Silvinsky. Why he was doing that still remains to be understood, but the point remains the highest number of texts about the Holocaust in the Soviet Union, poetry, f- nonfiction, and fiction are published there. Uh the uh doors are slammed shut in nineteen forty-six, but that's the time frame.
1: What became of Selvinsky after World War II? What happened to him in life after 1945?
2: Well, so during the victorious spring, he is finally allowed to be reintegrated into uh, official cultural life. His works are gradually allowed to be published. Also, his ranks are restored. He is again a lieutenant colonel. He never makes it to full colonel unlike some other leading Soviet writers who were frontline officers, including Stalin's favorite, Konstantin Simonov, who was part Russian, part Armenian, and who was not insensitive to Jewish suffering, by the way, but he was more sensitive to Stalin's line. But nevertheless, Selvinsky is not allowed to return to where the fighting is. He is sent to the area of Latvia, known as Kurland, where basically in the spring of 1945, there's no fighting, where a large group of Soviet troops is basically blockading a large group of uh, German armies. uh, And basically, Silvinsky never tastes of battle again, but he's there during the surrender of those uh, Nazi armies in Latvia. And his last assignment is he travels to Königsberg in East Prussia, which becomes now Soviet territory and still is Russian territory. And uh, he has some interesting experiences there because he witnesses the behavior of Soviet troops during the uh, occupation of the former of the former Reich territories. Uh, um, He returns to Moscow. And uh, this is, uh, as I mentioned, when uh following the heady uh, victorious summer uh mm-hmm. the stalinist leadership basically decides again in the summer of 1946 to send a chilling message to his artistic intelligentsia that no dissent no deviation from the party line would be tolerated and Sylvinsky again is uh, a very attractive target he's jewish He's an avant-gardist, he is uh, a war veteran, he writes about the Holocaust. So he is having a lot of trouble, but he's not arrested. He fears uh, for his arrest, but he's spared, uh, has some difficulty publishing, but basically after Stalin's death, he emerges as one of the most important survivors. To tell the complete story of his life during the late Soviet decades, we would need a whole other podcast. But all I can tell you is that he lives till 1968, which means that he not only lives through the formation of the state of israel uh but he also lives through the six-day war during which i by the way was born and uh, as a child uh i actually could have met him but i never did i met his uh, widow Bertha and of course i met his uh, daughter tatiana
1: as we bring today's dialogue to a close can you kindly tell us about what you've worked on since completing this book what are you working on now?
2: Thank you. I really appreciate the question. I'm sighing because it's a long decade, and where we are now, a lot of things have happened, uh, the war in Ukraine in particular, which, of course, uh, brings back so many memories of uh, the Shoah and other types of violence in Ukrainian territories involving Jews and not involving Jews. So my career sort of uh exists on two different tracks one is an academic and a uh university teacher and the other is uh, a writer of uh general interest fiction nonfiction and poetry so i've done some work in both of these uh directions uh most recently a literary memoir called Immigrant Baggage, uh, which came out uh, in 2023, which is a story of various immigrant adventures and misadventures in travel and crossing boundaries of cultures and countries in languages across languages in translation uh so that book i'm still sort of reading from and eager to speak about i also did a couple of academic books including a book that deals with the question of ultranationalism in russian culture uh and right now i'm working on something that i have been working on and off since graduate school which is the life Uh, of of Vladimir Nabokov, the great Russian-American writer who is mostly known for Lolita, but should be known for many other things, a book that uh, I'm working on, which is an examination of his career, mainly through the lens of his marriage, lifelong marriage to a Jewish woman who never converted, and how basically this marriage uh, was uh, one that I think made him sensitive more sensitive to Jewish suffering, more attuned to principal Jewish questions of this century. So this is uh, the pile I'm looking at when I kind of cast a glance across my desk, these Nabokov materials. But thank you so much for asking.
1: As we end our dialogue today, I wanted to mention how appreciative I am for all the erudition and knowledge you conveyed during the course of our dialogue and how grateful I am for your eloquent and detailed responses to everything we discussed in the course of our conversation.
2: Thank you, Ari. I really, really enjoyed speaking with you and uh, thank you for your very thoughtful and sensitive questions. It's my privilege and my honor. Thank
1: you so much. As we end our dialogue today, I am your host on the new Books in Jewish Studies podcast, Ari Barbalat. Today, I've been in dialogue with Maxime Schreier in regard to his work, I Saw It, Ilya Selvinsky and the Legacy of Bearing Witness to the Shoah, published in Boston by Academic Studies Press 2013. Dr. Schreier is Professor of Russian, English and Jewish Studies at Boston College. He is also the Acting Chair of the Department of Eastern Slavic and German Studies at Boston College. Thank you for your time and for all your wisdom.
2: Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.